Hello and welcome to The Entrepreneurs on Monocle Radio, the show all about inspiring people, innovative companies and fresh ideas in global business. Coming up today on the programme, we hear from a world-renowned business leader and CEO who's made a seamless switch from luxury retail to contemporary art. I would definitely consider that as a leader, being thoughtful in your execution is one of the most responsible things that you can do. I often talk about being kind as well, you know, as a, as a core value, if you like, in business. Is be kind, be thoughtful. It takes you a long way. Entrepreneurial excellence in the frame today on The Entrepreneurs with me, Tom Edwards. You're listening to The Entrepreneurs. You Inventors has enjoyed an illustrious career in luxury retail, having held senior positions at prestigious brands like Selfridges before taking the mantle of CEO at Fortnum & Mason, where he was lauded for reviving the fortunes of the iconic London store. Today, Ewan's the CEO of Hauser & Wirth, a contemporary art gallery with truly global reach. He also leads Art Farm, an independent hospitality and development company that celebrates local culture through site-specific works of art and public programmes. Ewan, it's a great pleasure to welcome you to The Entrepreneurs. Thanks for being with us. When you were running the shop, literally down the way from Midori House at Fortnum's, Did you sort of think, yes, my next big role could be as the first global CEO of a real power player in the art market? Was that in the back of your mind? Tell us a bit about the transition from retail to contemporary art. No, it certainly wasn't in the back of my mind at all, in fact. But actually, some people think, God, it's such such a transition, you know, such a different thing to do. But in fact, it's not that different. I mean, we're dealing with you know, the luxury end of the market. We're managing relationships with extraordinary artists, which is one of the big joys of the job, is the, the privilege to work with the artists and indeed the artists' estates. And of course, in a way that, you know, when you're in the premium food business, you're also dealing with artists of another sort. The great winemakers of the world, of course, are extremely extraordinary individuals and the great farmers and the great chocolate makers. So, Oddly enough, there are similarities when we talk about the product, if you like, the artwork, the works of art themselves. So, no, it's a great joy. I mean, my gosh, I don't think I ever imagined that I'd have the privilege of working with Ivan and Manuela Worth and with the whole team in the heart of the contemporary art world. And I guess because I'm fascinated by people who are practised and successful stewards of heritage brands, because there's so much legacy i think it can weigh down some executives you've obviously excelled why is that is it do you you have to just immerse yourself in that sort of weight of history and use it to be liberating and inspiring because it can be burdensome i think on on occasions but you've obviously you wear it very lightly clearly at fortnum's but also still at, at hauser as well what is it about that heritage piece that seems to to fit why why are you so good at, at doing that well you know if, if one thinks back to my overall career when i came to london when i was 17 i started to work for the sainsbury family and you know the golden thread of my entire career is actually working for families I think at one stage I worked for a public company that was still dominated by family ownership. In fact, the Sainsbury's was that and one other family. So I think understanding families is a really important attribute. And then, of course, the fact that so many of these families had heritage businesses and businesses with long legacies. It's as if you come at it from a point of view that I'm a mere custodian. It's just a, a moment in history. It's my time. And I think that probably is the right way to think about it. So stewardship. 
and respecting the history and letting that be part of informing the future. And I think if you take that sort of approach, then you generally, you know, make the right decisions. And, and I was always taught an expression years and years ago, evolution, not revolution. And of course, we're in a competitive market. So you have to be agile and you have to be highly creative and, 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 and be fast moving. But actually, deep down, it is all about an evolution. Mm. And I think that historical heritage brands deserve that level of consideration. And when it goes wrong, it's when young bucks or old bucks, doesn't matter, young or old really, uh, come along and they think they know better. And actually nobody knows better than the brand itself. Our job as entrepreneurs, as leaders, is to listen to the brand and navigate the brand in a way that works for the benefit of, in our case, everything is about the benefit of the artist. We live, breathe, sleep the artist. If it's not good for the artist, it's not good for house and birth. It's not good for the collectors. It's not good for the wider public who come to see the programme, unless it's right for the artist. What's your process like then, Ewan, when you're working with artists? And we can maybe get into some specifics. There must be particular favourites that you, you had already, even before you started working at Hauser, who whom the gallery represents. It's an incredible, it's an incredible roster, I think our listeners will be familiar with. On this point about... It's not ones and zeros. It's not a ledger. You can't really do a P&L when it comes to art. It's human. It's instinctive. How do you bring your wealth of business savvy and experience to bear on something that is so subjective and that in some ways defies, I know it's driven by a market, but in some ways it defies market logic. It's not necessarily rational. Can you still use the same skill sets that you've developed over the, over the decades? Or do you have to sort of allow some other influences to shape your decision making? Well, I mean, it's quite straightforward. You completely allow the people who know best to do their <laughs> jobs. I mean, I'm a cog in, in, a, in a wheel of talented people. And Ivanworth, Manuela Worth, Mark Pale in America, our co-president, these are the experts. These people have lived in this industry for all their lives. So it's less, you know, my role as CEO is less about, less traditional in that sense, you know, less conventional about I make every decision. No, 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 I'm part of a group of people who make the right decisions. So, of course, I'm, what my principal role is to allow them more time with their clients and more time with their artists and making sure that I help support the development of the teams to run the business day to day. And that interface, because, you know, I have a dual role. I'm CEO of the gallery, but also CEO of, of Art Farm, which I'm sure we'll talk about, which is about the hospitality element of the organisation, which is the very thing that makes the gallery completely different. And our artists love that. Our clients love that. That is the very thing that makes Hausenwerth entirely different, is that interface between art, food, hospitality, and the power of convening people. So I tread cautiously <laughs> in not trying to say that I know best. I'm informing a view, of course, with a bit more experience, just over two years in the role. And that's exciting. And that's that was part of the reason for even making the move was wanting the intellectual stretch to be made to feel uncomfortable every day by doing something that isn't so familiar. And again, I think that's really important to keep reminding myself that, you know, that's what I'm doing and and being thoughtful in the way that I communicate and then thoughtful in the way that I contribute to those conversations. But, the, you know, they are the experts. They know how to, you know, I mean, it's astonishing really to see how they've developed 
the artist in their rostra and the legacy and protect legacies. You know, Louise Bourgeois has been part of the gallery for many, many, many years and was a living artist for a chunk of time. Of course, you know, passed away and now we manage her estate. And that relationship is so, so important, protecting her legacy and making sure that her legacy is, that story is continued to be told in a proper and responsible way. One of the, if not the most important female artists of the 20th century. Yeah, amazing. And uh, these themes seem to run through, don't they, about legacy, heritage, stewardship. Oh, I think it's interesting you, you use the word thoughtful because lots of the entrepreneurs even that we speak to on this show, maybe being thoughtful about things isn't always top of their list, but I think that explains a great deal of the good fit and, and your ongoing successes. Yeah, I, I would definitely consider that as a leader, being thoughtful in your execution is one of the most responsible things that you can do. I often talk about being kind as well, you know, as a, as a core value, if you like, in business is be kind, be thoughtful, it takes you a long way. Maybe we'll come back to that. Let's zero in though on that nexus that you already mentioned, you know, which I think is really interesting. We're so passionate about sparking conversations, obviously here on the radio, but it's a, it's a monocle value. Our editor-in-chief, Andrew Tuck, has been writing particularly recently, actually, about the power of convening. And you've already explained that this is a big point of difference for Hauser & Worth compared to some other consequential players. Why, though, that emphasis? Was it, is that the consequence of feelings and instinct shared with you and all your colleagues over a number of years? Because the manifestation of it is super interesting. We can talk about specific premises and other ones, new, newer acquisitions and, of course, amazing things going on over in the West Country here in the, in the UK. Again, the consequence of a, a long fascination with this area, this driver of conversation. Ivan and Manuel Worth, I think, made their first restaurant investment almost at the same time as they opened the gallery 30 years ago. So they've always had a deep personal passion and love of food, love of farming, love of nature. And, you know, if you've met many artists in your life, then you'll know that they all adore nothing more than sitting at a restaurant table, breaking bread, drinking good wine and sharing great conversation. So it's such just a natural thing for them, a natural being, that they would want to make this more of a business. The art farm business was created in 2016, 17, and, and actually I joined as a non-executive director initially, which led to the conversation of joining full-time and being responsible for the gallery and for art farm. And so now it's turning into quite a serious business and expanding at great rates and and, that, and that's exciting but it does come, the genesis comes from a, a real authentic place of love of food and wine and farming and agriculture and this idea of celebrating I you know almost in every job I've ever done when I've been interviewed and the, the person on the other side of the table would say well you know we'll be back in touch you and then I'm, I'm you know with a probably with an offer or something. And I go, well, actually, that's not good enough. If you're going to make me an offer, let's meet over lunch or dinner. Because I would never take a job with someone ever if I didn't share a meal with them. I love that. See, we like to gather these things as little primers of how to make better decisions. And this is the thing. It's the old chestnut, <laughs> isn't it? Break bread and, Break. and get together. I love that, Ewan. On that point, then, have you ever learned that it's not the right place to go as a consequence of one of those meals. I mean, we imagine that this is presage all your, the happy sort of <laughs> business marriages you've made, but and I, any, any that where you were like, hang on, this isn't quite right. Do you know, apart from my first ever job at Sainsbury's, 
I've never applied for a job. <laughs> okay. And but it's a point of principle. I've well, always been approached. I've only ever been approached by people who I've ended up going to work for, if that makes sense. Okay. So, you know, people people say, well, you and you must get lots of calls. I think, no, <laughs> maybe I'm doing something wrong. <laughs> I love this. You're batting a thousand, as they say, on the other side of the pond. But, but it is an interesting reality is that if your persona is such that actually people are very cautious about approaching me. But if an approach does come, then I think they've done their homework and they've really thought this one through. And of course, people give you all the bravado about, well, you know, talking to a lot of people, but you sense that actually they're talking to me because they kind of have very clear intentions that they want to hire me. So, and that's not to say that in an arrogant way, that's just a, in a way, I think it's a really nice attribute, frankly. Mm. And hence why I've actually had relatively few moves in my ultimate career, you know, just a few companies, albeit within some of those companies, steps along the way. Do you know, I've never, ever done something driven by profit in isolation. It's often about thinking through what's the right people, what's the right environment, what's the right processes, what's the right product, frankly. And if you do all of those things right, then the profit will follow. And that, I think, for me, is the ultimate measurement of success. Of course, I think, you know, we're commercial animals and we're in commercial businesses. And of course, it's important to make a return. But don't be driven by that. Otherwise, you will make the wrong decision. Can I ask you a bit about the role of technology? Because obviously, I guess, you know, steward of a great sort of bricks and mortar retail brand now in uh, the contemporary art space, tech, it informs every conversation. Look at the narratives now around AI and all the rest of it. How do you sort of treat that? Because presumably, as a business leader, you can understand how it can drive progressive agenda. It can make things more inclusive. It can open up markets. It's hugely efficient as a driver of business growth. But obviously, we have to tread with a great deal of caution. I'm somewhat sort of nervous about copyright and AI. And obviously, in terms of image regeneration, this is presumably a live conversation you and your colleagues are are, are engaged with. What's the sort of view on tech? Are you a a kind of a healthy sceptic? Do you have to seek the views of people who are at the cutting edge to help you learn best how to apply? How, How do you look at tech if we can sort of generalize it into one big homogenous thing tech's hugely important so you know i think you've got to be aware you can't drive your business by tech you know i think in the art space i mean a really good live example is nfts were Mm. hot hot news and i remember just joining the gallery and within months it was about nfts and cryptocurrency and we really put a lot of effort behind learning and understanding and, and hired some fantastic experts subject matter experts to do some deep dive analysis of what this meant. But we were cautious. We didn't jump in. Others did. Others went, yeah, this is going to be, you know, and how right we were to be cautious, actually. (laughs) And again, I mentioned about the artist. We didn't have artists, real artists, you know, I mean, painters, sculptors, you know, people with deep credentials. They weren't rushing to say, I've got to do an NFT. And so we were listening to our artists at the same time as reviewing the tech solution. So, you know, I have a very detailed understanding of blockchain and the importance of blockchain and what how blockchain can support the running of our organization and the security of image control and, and rights. And, and, and so, so we're in a good place to adapt that, but not to just go for a, from a fashionable perspective. Mm. We actually had a, an initiative just at the end of last year where we were probably the first commercial art gallery in the world to hold an auction of artworks for charity. And we raised nearly $5 million for refugee crisis across the world. 
not specifically Ukraine, but across the world. The auction houses, of course, that's their business, but commercial galleries don't do auctions typically. And of course, you know, the power of auctions is that you can understand who obviously ultimately is the highest bidder, but who who are the underbidders? And then you can have a whole conversation. So that was a good example of using technology and applying that in a different sector, i.e. a commercial art gallery, and doing something great for one of the major you know, challenges of the world, refugees. Let's talk a bit about how the market's shaping up. Do you, do you think, because I, I try and sort of avoid talking about the pandemic, but during that period we saw kind of throughout the, the whole, you know, sort of gamut of the art market from, you know, the big, the super premium to smaller players, there was a necessary shift to engage more with, with digital. And it also seemed to drive more transparency, whether that was about pricing, just an openness about the business, which I think was broadly probably very, very welcome. Obviously, we don't want to lose some of the allure and a bit of the magic and the mystique. Are you aware of that? Do you think that's been a positive change? Do you think that there is greater transparency and that it is serving broadly the world better? Transparency is always a good thing. I don't see any issues with that whatsoever. And I think that the COVID environment helps support. But do you know what? I think one of the most fabulous outcomes is that from a sustainability perspective, and, you know, we have a full-time focus on sustainability and our carbon footprint in the gallery and the supply chain around it, is that COVID allowed collectors to be warmer to the idea of looking at images on a screen without the work having to be shipped around the world for them to look at it. So if you've got the right relationship with the client, then of course a condition report together with a great image can in many cases be now more than enough for that client to make that acquisition. And that's a very different world from pre-COVID when very often those works of art would be shipped around the world for personal inspection. So there's a great I think, environmental win, that works of art aren't just shipping around the world for inspections and that that need is being satisfied through great use of digital tools at the most basic level. I mean, JPEGs. And it's not that... It's not, Even it's I can just about get my, my, my limited Luddite brain around. And I think that, you know, the build on that and how the technology can work uh, will only get greater and greater. And that'll be, you know, more more interesting and more fundamental. But I guess, is, a, is there a conflict, though, in terms of this move for greater transparency, for a, a democratisation of the art market? Because in a sense, people will say, look, you know, you, you know Hauser and Worth, it sort of, it works because it is in the vanguard, it's at the cutting edge, it's in the super premium space, you're serving a demographic who are by the nature of the works and the artists that you represent in the sort of one percent of the one percent you do need a bit of that it needs a degree of exclusivity otherwise it sort of doesn't doesn't work is, is that a conflict or is that just opportunity and it means but you can engage with different audiences it's for a, different it, reasons it is an opportunity because although the final transaction of selling art may be to a small group of people at the core of what we do is we show we want as many people as possible to see the programme of, of work. So in Somerset, for example, in Bruton, Somerset, our gallery that opened in 2014, will be 10 years old next year, over a million people have gone through that location. Somerset, Bruton, a million people. Many museums would die for that level of foot traffic. And that's been achieved because of the quality of the programme and the presentation, and it's free of charge. And the use of digital enables greater promotion and a greater drive. And then, of course, when you're there, there's gorgeous gardens and there's a wonderful farm shop and there's a great restaurant, et cetera, et cetera. And an education centre, a learning programme. We're literally giving an opportunity to tens and tens of thousands of people across the world 
to engage in our learning programme. Well, then those people who are on those programmes probably aren't the custodians of the going to buy the work, but actually it motivates the artist. It motivates the buyers of work, which is why some of the great collectors of the world, of course, are very happy to lend works to institutions, to galleries, to allow that work to be seen by as wide an audience as possible. And I think that's a, a really important aspect of how we see the development and the growth of the art market. And people should check out these locations. We've mentioned them. They can go and have a look online and see. They can fire their imaginations. Um, that's before we even talk about the, the, the wonderful works they might see when they when they get there. Let me talk a little bit about the day-to-day, the mechanics. What's the kind of nine-to-five? How does it work for you? What kind of guy? Are you, a, are you a details man? Do you need to get away sometimes and see the big picture from further away? Forgive the pun. What, what's do you, do you even have a typical day? I guess every day is probably atypical. Yeah, there is no such thing as a typical day. I mean, every week often involves flying somewhere in the world to any one of our extraordinary locations. Some flying a lot more on, you know, Zoom and the like. But no, I mean, that's the, that's the joy of what we do. And I was talking to Ivan yesterday and he just arrived in Venice looking at locations for the Biennale. And, and his exact words yesterday were, this is the greatest job in the world. And I mean, this is a man who's been in the business for over 30 years and is... I mean, I think we can all be seduced by Venice, though. I think that's one of the great... <laughs> I've heard <cities>. that happens. <laughs> but the point is that, you know, there is no typical day and, and the variety is extraordinary. And, of course, that's part of the charm of, of what gets done. We are all, all, obviously, as you know, you know, we're in Asia. We're in west coast of America, east coast of America. So, of course, we're, we're, we're actually never closed. So there is an opportunity to communicate with someone <laughs> or be communicated to 24 hours a day. And that's exciting, but also challenging from time to time. That's a little bit, on a, on a slightly smaller scale, but that's a bit like our Monaco operation. There's always somebody somewhere who that's wants right. to send me an email, usually asking me to do something. <laughs> um, I, I think that's amazing, that, that detail about Ivan. I think what's so great about that is it speaks to what we started talking about, you know, passionate families who love what they do. How great it is that you have somebody like that, a real titan, who is moved from day to day to just say, how good's this? How, well, how lucky am I? And that's, I think that is definitely atypical in, you know, in, in that kind of, in that kind of world, that kind of business leadership. It's, but that's really amazing. Isn't and, it? and also yesterday I sent Manuela a photograph of a smoked trout salad because it looked gorgeous. And I sent it to her and she went, where can I eat that, Ewan? And I said, actually, it's going on the Mount Street menu tomorrow. <laughs> she was as excited to see that image as I was when I received the image from the chef, because the chef can't put anything on the menu without either me tasting it or at least seeing an image to prove the dish, uh, you know, if I can't get there. And, you know, so we're as excited and motivated by that experience as we are about, you know, a great work of art or a, or a great new location or... It's a different kind of work of art, but a work of art. Nonetheless. Just exactly. quickly, I don't want to be too London-centric, but we are sitting in Marlebone here at Monocle HQ, not too far from some of the places we've mm. been mentioning. You've got Mount Street, amazing, the Groucho Club acquisition. There's all sorts of exciting things. Just tell us a bit about if friends, clients, people just listening in are in town, where they can head, what they can find when they get there. Yeah, I mean, London, I mean, we're so lucky that we've managed to acquire this old pub called The Audley, which is 120 years old and it has always been a pub. We were lucky enough to acquire the site and, and we've lovingly restored the public house on the ground floor with art interventions and great art on the walls. And in particular in the pub, there's a, a if you look to the ceiling, there's a great work from Philip de Barlow, who very sadly passed away just a few weeks ago, but, you know, a British artist of significant note, not least her skills and her, her, her history of 
training and supporting and teaching other younger artists over over many many decades and and they're you know what a legacy that her work is on such public show in a in a pub i mean it couldn't be more democratic and then as you go up the building it becomes a bit more exclusive shall we say so there's the mount street restaurant which is on the first floor with the amazing work of art on the floor itself by rashid johnson a part of his broken man series and it's that that's a again a joyous thing to marvel at and working with a, an american artist who had never ever allowed his work to be expressed on a floor and quite a brave thing to do all in all but my goodness it's just an extraordinary thing to see as well as you know going for a great food and drink and then a series of what we call the curious rooms so people can go and explore private dining spaces themed through the lens of different countries italy switzerland Scotland, unsurprisingly, <laughs> and then the games room, which is the or known as the naughty room. It's got a little bit more edgy art and a card table for people to play poker or or whatever. So that's a a great sort of open to all location in London. Head out to Somerset, to Bruton, to see the English countryside, to see extraordinary program of works as well as as touched on, or head to Scotland to our wonderful hotel called the Five Arms which is a 46-bedroom hotel in the heart of Royal Deeside, close to where Queen Victoria bought Balmoral. So it's full of history and heritage, and the Victorians you know, really loved that part of Scotland. And so we've restored this coaching house hotel with so much Victoriana detail and layers of antiques and, and great works of art. But then you'll see you know, the most amazing Picasso on the wall and the most amazing Freud and a piano that's been hand-painted by Mark Bradford. And so the unexpected goes on. So Britain, the island of Britain, has some real jewels of hospitality through the Hauser and Wirth lens of extraordinary art. The Groucho Club, of course, you touched on as a new experience, but of course that's a private members club, so people have to be a member to access. And then further afield in America, we took over an old flour mill in downtown Los Angeles, and it's, it's an extraordinary building, 160,000 square feet. It's huge. And it's home to three different Hauser galleries with a great program, a bookshop, an education centre, and the most splendid restaurant right in the middle of the courtyard. So it's that fusion of, as I touched on, that, that great food, great wine. In that case, we actually have chickens in the courtyard as well, bizarrely, and we grow some vegetables and we grow some salads. And it's a destination. So for art lovers who want to spend a day out, it's just a great place to go and see extraordinary works in a very friendly environment. And that's part of the genesis of who we are, is we want as, as, as wide an audience as possible to see as much of our programme as, as is possible. Uh, William, you talk very eloquently about delivering the unexpected, but precisely as expected. It's been a delight to chat with you. Thank you very much for coming to see us. Thank you very much. That was Ewan Venters. You can learn more at artfarm.com or head on over to houseofearth.com. And that's it for this episode of The Programme. We'll be back next week. Do look out in the meantime for Eureka, available on Friday. The Entrepreneur's Programme was produced by Laura Kramer with mixing and editing by Jack Dewars. Listen again and find out more at monocle.com. That's where you can also subscribe to Monocle magazine for more about better businesses every month. 
You can follow us and catch up with the archive via your preferred podcast platform. And do get in touch. Email laura at lrk at monocle.com. I'm Tom Edwards. Goodbye and thanks for listening to The Entrepreneurs.